Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, Professor Conor Geerty, Professor of Human Rights Law, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Geerty's academic research focuses primarily on civil liberties, terrorism and human rights. Professor Geerty's paper was entitled Human Rights, Seductive, Dangerous and Necessary and was given on Friday 21st of January 2011. Oh, well, that was a very warm uh, welcome. Well, I'm very grateful to uh, the uh, Humanities Institute, which is where we are, uh, for this invitation. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, it's lovely to be able to come over to UCD and to see the place growing as it is and engaged in interdisciplinary work uh, because I'm at a university where, which is LSE, where it is inherently interdisciplinary in that we don't consciously meet in order to develop interdisciplinary activities, we are interdisciplinary. And so much of it is about architecture and is about the effortless engagement that flows out of a place that is designed to bring you always together. And that was uh, the insight of the person who appointed me in LSE, was Tony Giddens, uh, to have these centres and institutes to get them away from departments and to transcend departments. And it's been a very uh, exciting time for me. Uh, And I hope that that's what I see in this development of something like an institute, an effort to draw people in from various disciplines. Now, human rights, which is the topic today, is ideal for that. It really is ideal for that, because it isn't a discipline. Uh, It's a perspective which feeds into a variety of disciplines. And the perspective collides with the perspectives of others when it comes to that term. So it's a complicated phrase to tie down. And so much is informed by your disciplinary perspective, but you can learn more about your own understanding of the subject by engaging with other disciplines. And what I'm going to talk about is exactly on the uh, title that Morris mentioned. And what I've put up here in a slightly less grabby look than I have on on it in other computers, I think this computer is old-fashioned or something, is a book I'm trying to do on the web, week by week. And if any of you is interested in any of the points that I make here, uh, you could sort of dip through this book. We're near the end. It's a 20-week project, and it'll be launched at the LSE Festival of Ideas in February. And quite a lot of what I'm going to talk about is reflected in the various tracks, as I call them, that are in this book. And uh, there's a hint of why I think human rights are necessary in the title, uh, The Rights, Rights, The Rights Future, and in what I call a manifesto for the rights future. Uh, So I'll come to that right at the end. But the title for today, for my 45 minutes, is Human Rights, Seductive, Dangerous, and Necessary. It's a statement. There's not a question mark. I think it's all three. And what I'm going to explore between now and about 20 to 6 or so, is how it is all three. And I've changed my views on the term human rights in a way that I'll try and 
capture towards the end of this talk. Uh, let's start with seductive. And there are, I think, three aspects to the seductive power of human rights which explain their contemporary power. And the first is well captured in a book that's out this month, which is well worth flicking through or reading in depth in portions. And it's a book by Ronald Walken called Justice for Hedgehogs. Uh, Ronald Walken is, I guess, the most powerful contemporary populizer in the best sense of human rights ideas in their political-legal understanding. And he's been on the go for a long time. And this is a kind of culmination of his work. And though I disagree with him, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And it's my starting point. Because what Ronald Dworkin does in Justice for Hedgehogs is remind us of the seductive characteristic to which I want to refer initially, which is the moral clarity of human rights. And the argument, and this is not the section with which I disagree, goes like this. We each of us have an obligation to ourselves to act well. And what it is to act well is to lead a reflective but good life. And that's a combination of both a flourishing as a person and taking responsibility for what one is. And that ethic feeds into a morality. Dworkin distinguishes ethic and morality. And the morality is to give, in your interactions with people, every person similar platforms to the one that you enjoy yourself for personal development and for the taking of personal responsibility. In a way, it's the straightforward idea, first religious and then Kantian, do on to others what you would have done on to yourself. Esteem everyone equally. And public morality is organizing your state in a way which guarantees a right attitude to everybody. Uh, that the state, expressing it negatively, does not act in a way which is contemptuous of the life opportunities and responsibility of anyone within its realm. And Ronald Walken then sees rights as, in his famous, famous term, repeated in this book, as trumps in the political process. I will come back to that maybe if we have time, but that's where he becomes, I think, slightly uh, difficult. 
But human rights have this clear role in society, in the individual, in the individual's interactions with other people, but in society, public morality, which is that they are a constraint on the conduct of the state or of the society in that they insist that the society act in a way which demonstrates a right attitude to individuals and to all and does not display a contempt for all or any. This idea of attitude is how Ronald Dworkin avoids the charge of, uh, of imperialism because he says, I'm not insisting that they do the following in the name of human rights. I'm insisting merely that their attitude to their cult, to their society, is one which is not contemptuous of human rights. Now that's clear, and it's seductive in contrast to other versions of the truth. Other ideas have purported to offer similar degrees of clarity, uh, but they have been disgraced or are controversial in ways that human rights is not. Uh, religion offers a version of truth. It offers a version of certainty and of clarity. But to many, religion is associated now with a kind of fundamentalist selectivity about the approach to the person. So religion is never far away from sectarianism. Uh, similarly, nationalism, beliefs in a country might have offered that degree of certainty that might have filled the gap in a person and that has spilled over in the past and still in some countries you can see it into a kind of fascist uh, uh, respect for the leader reflective of a nation. Uh, socialism, for quite a long time, fulfilled a similar kind of role. Uh, a role which suggested that there was a clear perspective on the future, which could be achieved through a socialistic engagement in the state. Uh, one of the reasons why human rights has become so crucial, necessary, is that that's no longer an effective argument in much of society. So its moral clarity makes it seductive. It's Truth claim makes it seductive. Seductive doesn't necessarily appeal to reason. Seductive is about something that is attractive. And however much we are persuaded by arguments about the radical uncertainty of truth, however much our reading causes us to be convinced that Nietzsche was right, and that there is no truth out there, and that words do not connote any truth. And however much we read postmoderns and post-philosophers, as the late and great Richard Rorty called himself, we hanker after the inherent. And human rights appears to deliver truth as well as clarity. And that's very appealing. And that can either be a moral truth of the sort I mentioned, or it can be uh, a truth based on nature. There's a resurgence of interest in a non-religious, natural 
law in the sense of a law driven by what we are, which produces explanations of lots of stuff, why we are liberal, why we are conservative, why we like coffee, why we like coffee with sugar, why we care about people. And there is, of course, also in human rights the certainty, the truth delivered by law. Because for many people, human rights is about international human rights documents. It's about constitutional guarantees of rights, which is a kind of truth. And so this moral clarity, this claim to truth, uh, are intuitively, thirdly and finally in regards to seductive, very pleasing. It's incredible how many philosophers, when you drill down to what starts their discussion, start with intuition, start with assessments of what is right as a kind of starting point. And human rights flows out of a starting point which is that starting point, which suggests that you want to reach an end point of respect for the other. And it's the term that people use today when they want to express why they are driven to help people. You know, I used to run a program in LSE, an MSE program in human rights, and hundreds of people applied. And what was interesting, I, wrote, I did a lecture about this a few years ago. What was interesting about the applications, they all have to write a person's statement. And almost without exception, the people who applied to do human rights at postgraduate level at university are saying they want to study it, not because they are interested in the meaning of autonomy, not because they think there are certain gaps in the convention on the rights of this or that which they seek to expand, but because they say they want to help people. And they have then this record of involvement. And so this flows out of this intuitive belief in the obligation to assist. And the two have merged in the minds of these applicants. And the language of human rights is seductive because it appears to confirm this intuition and dignify it with a powerful philosophical cover. So it's seductive because it's morally clear, claims truth, and is intuitively pleasing. Uh, I said that I've changed my mind up to a point about human rights. I'm so sure I've changed my mind, but uh, I wrote a piece to The Guardian saying that I'm now convinced that I changed my mind about whether I changed my mind. It's a, bit, it's a bit complicated. I was asked to write with a number of other people about what, uh, on what had you changed your mind over the last 10 years, and that was mine, that I changed my mind about whether I changed my mind. <laughs> because I'm a very alive to not only the seductiveness but the, the dangerousness of the term of human rights. And I used to emphasize the danger a lot more than perhaps I now emphasize the necessity. So in terms of the balance of the talk, the second bit of it is sort of what I used to emphasize, and the third bit is, I think, what we need to emphasize. And the danger flows from its strength. What is the seductiveness based in? It's based in kind of the generality of the language, and its universality. The generality means, of course, that it avoids immediate contact with, the, with disputes. So it postpones disputes. 
And that generality is why everybody can share a belief in human rights. You are postponing conflict. One of the greatest complaints I have with lawyers is that they don't see that everything is ultimately going to be a conflict. They think that the language resolves the conflict. All it does is relocate the conflict. Uh, because the language being general requires interpretation. And once you concede interpretation, you are begging the question about the power to interpret, and you are acknowledging the vulnerability to manipulation by bad faith interpreters, or by misguided interpreters, or by simply interpreters. And from its inception, the term human rights has been exposed to interpretative engagements which have produced a language which operates in a way that is directly contrary to what you might imagine would be the case. And I'm saying what I imagine you believe would be the case is that the language of human rights is progressive, that the language of human rights is emancipatory. This project which has disappeared is a project in which I am trying to give that meaning to human rights. But it is one version of human rights. And history shows us how the language can be deployed in a different way, in a very conservative, reactionary way. And we need to acknowledge that that is possible. I call it dangerous because I'm neither conservative nor reactionary. Were I either, I might be very much in favour of the language of human rights for exactly this reason. Just as a subtext, you cannot pretend to eliminate your political disposition from a discussion of human rights. Or rather, you can pretend to, but you should be unsuccessful. Uh, examples. Coming up, first of all, take Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes, 1640s, 1650s. Uh, I wrote a big, long article somewhere on something called SSRN on this. Uh, Hobbes, in some ways you can say, is the originator of the idea of, of subjective rights. Is the originator of the idea that, that as a person, you have rights. Uh, and Hobbes saw us as having rights to everything. Because what drove our lives was the need not to die. And he succeeded himself because he lived a very long time. And this imperative caused us, in a sense, to have a natural right to do what it takes. But we don't live in a world of infinite resources, and we don't live in a world of infinite space. And if everybody has this right, then everybody is at risk from the actions of others. So Quentin Skinner is absolutely brilliant on this, but the great paradox of having the right to everything is that you are at risk from the rights that everybody else has to everything, which means your life is precarious. That's the underlying argument which produces the outcome, which is what I'm talking about when I talk about reactionary manipulation of language, because Hobbes says the only solution is to transfer power to Leviathan. The only solution to the dilemma of having human rights, natural rights he called them, is an authority to which you transfer power to protect yourself and you reserve no rights. So you end up with a theory of despotism, a theory of authoritarianism which flows out of a belief in natural rights. Does this matter? Yes, the 1640s, people were trying to argue for an idea of rights as an emancipatory idea. Uh, there was quite a strong movement which was not just willing to transfer power 
from the king to the army, but which saw the democratic potential in revolution. And Hobbes took the language of rights and turned it into a royalist language by showing the chaos that flowed from rights. The first in a long line of intellectuals whose success lies in having echoed the desires of the powerful of the day and in having provided them with an intellectual cover to preserve their privilege. Uh, Take, for example, the use made of John Locke. A second example, the use made of John Locke. John Locke's ideas were similar to Hobbes's, as I'm sure you know, but he preserved uh, rights. So there was a sense in which we kept rights to life, uh, liberty, and estate. But as democratization was successfully secured, didn't emerge in some whiggish, inexorable way, but was successfully secured by struggle, so the powerful fell back upon their so-called natural rights to life, liberty, and estate to resist the implications of democratization. So in the 19th century and the early 20th century, the language of rights was the language of reaction. The language of rights was the language that judges used when they tried to stop trade unions from funding labour representation in Parliament. An outrageous defiance of the Lockean model of the elected representative there as a fence to our property. The notion of natural rights and human rights and constitutional rights has caused a lot of confusion. So far, I'm talking about natural rights. And this idea that you can have these rights outside the political process, withheld, as it were, from the social contract, to me is a deeply reactionary idea. And it's a language of rights that, because it will be the judges who will tell you what it means in practice, empowers unelected, unaccountable persons to control the outcomes of the political process. Sounds like a fantasy from somebody in the United Kingdom, but as recently as in Jackson and the Attorney General, a case involving hunting foxes with dogs, some members of the House of Lords were talking about a natural set of rights which were above Parliament, which could determine the validity of acts of Parliament. A lot of people hail this as an advance for rights. I think it's a plunge back into a reactionary past. Now, most countries, of course, don't need to fall back on natural law and theoretical social contracts because most countries have rights in constitutions. And one of the most dangerous deployments of the language of rights, if you are a progressive, is via constitutions. And here we have the very damaging work of the United States Supreme Court. And I say it's very damaging work because the intellectual weather in liberal human rights studies is made by largely men who are largely influenced by the experiences that they remember from a very short period of liberalism in the United States Supreme Court. 
in other words, a period where the United States Supreme Court was acting, as it were, as the natural law guardians of liberty in a way which forced the body politic to act in a progressive fashion. A period from 1954 to 1973, from a case called Brown and the Board of Education to Roe versus Wade. And that made it possible for people of that generation who are hugely influential, and Ronald Walken is absolutely the epitome of it, to say that human rights equal constitutional rights equal the guarantee that everybody will be esteemed and the body politic must be controlled by who? The judiciary to ensure that it has the right attitude. The record of most constitutional courts, and certainly the United States Constitutional Court, as a guarantor of civil rights is disgraceful, outrageous. It's the American Supreme Court that said that escaping slaves being property must be returned to their masters. It's the American Supreme Court that said that separate education between blacks and whites is fine under the United States Constitution in Plessy and Ferguson. It's the United States Supreme Court in the 1930s that did its absolute best to destroy progressive legislation which has been pushed through by the Roosevelt administration. And more recently, it's the United States Constitution that has empowered corporations in the name of free speech to fund to whatever amount they wish, whichever candidates they want. This creature is the consequence of a naive belief that a democracy is defined not by the wishes of the majority, but by the wishes of the elected assembly, controlled by the guardians of morality. It's the same with those constitutions that were put in place both immediately after the Second World War and also more recently in the constitutions which mimic the American in the emerging free countries of Eastern and Central Europe, where barriers to political action are erected in the shape of, primarily and for example, a right to property, where institutionalized barriers against certain political solutions are bedded down in the form of supra-political constitutional guarantees. On the Irish country, I, 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 I won't presume to judge. I did once write an essay about the impact of the Supreme Court on socially progressive legislation, and I think that it's something that could be usefully studied and brought up to date. But I remember all the rent review cases and the rent restriction cases, and I remember the extent to which the guaranteed rights to property in this country act as a kind of inhibition to interventions that, if you had a coherent body politic, would be manifestly in the public interest. So there is this dangerousness, which is the dangerousness that flows from empowering conservative elements in society to control the political process in the name of the moral claim to rights which you've conceded should be outside the political process. There are two other kinds of danger. Uh, one 
that apart from this entrusting to reactionary elements in society such an important task as the guardianship of the body politic. Uh, the first of the two is how the language of human rights, remember, being very general, can be deplored by the powerful with a degree of support from the intellectual community in ways that suit the powerful. Now, that's an important with a degree of support from the intellectual community. That little addition is important. It will be difficult for a powerful figure to claim a certain meaning for human rights, which was uh, rejected by everybody who worked in the field and spoke about the field and studied the field. But if there is a thread to the intellectual discourse which is supportive of that version of rights, then that version can triumph. Uh, this is Hobbes and power. Well, nowadays, it's torture and invasion. I mean, it seems scarcely credible but a substantial number of experts on human rights, professors, directors of human rights centers, no less, were in the van of arguing for a muscular version of human rights which involved military action to achieve human rights. Now, it's scarcely credible, maybe, because we all have in the back of our mind Iraq, but what they had, in fairness to them, in the back of their mind was Rwanda. So we react to the crisis that we recall. But nevertheless, we had people like Michael Ignatieff, and he wasn't alone, and a very influential figure because he was a gifted broadcaster, arguing from his secure environment in Harvard that it was right to invade Iraq. And so President Bush is entitled to say the human rights argument is, it's open. So I will choose the version that suits me. Uh, Worse, worse, a number of academics, including Michael Ignatieff, began to see human rights as not universal, and after all, the vagueness of the language allowed this kind of capture, but as reflective of a particular culture. And guess what? It's our culture. And what's our? Well, it's not all those Muslims in our culture. We, it's us. It's it's, ooh, how can I say white without saying white? And so we get this notion of a clash of civilizations. And it's a clash between us and them. And the them are out there and we go and invade their country because we have to protect ourselves from their hatred of us. And they are also in here and we need to be careful about them in here too. And this then leads to what Michael Ignatieff called necessary evil. And necessary evil is what, again, Michael's term the carnivores do to protect the herbivore human rights people. In other words, we need to be tough. And then you get uh, Michael, uh, Michael Ignatius' colleague in Harvard, Alan Dershowitz, saying he's so against torture, he's going to insist on judicial warrants to make sure that when it's done, it's done properly. It's done properly with a judge. Morris would be in charge. And then you check how many fingernails were taken away, and on the fifth fingernail, You'd be able to say, no, that's too many. But the rest of it would be all right. And there'd be a doctor, so there'd be no infection before you die. Uh, now, this is an example of 
the, the danger of the language. That failed in, on the whole. I think that, that interpretation failed, I think. I think they were stood up to it. There was enough brave people who stood up to it, and also the Americans got killed in Iraq. Let's face it. Let's face the fact of how dependent we are on the violence of others. It became a failure. Uh, but it's something we need to remember. Our language is capable of being turned on its head. Uh, and the third, the first is the way in which we rely on the judges as reactionary elements. The second is the way in which it can be transformed into a, a weapon in a cultural war, this term human rights. Uh, and the third is that, and it's related to both, it's related to both, the language of human rights can become a legitimization of human rights violations. Now that's a point about law, actually. It's a point about law. I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is drawn from my own memory of uh, an episode in, in Britain. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights declared that, and it seems like quaint, seven-day detention is a breach of human rights. We used to complain about four-day detention. I'm old enough to remember how we thought that the Police and Criminal Evidence Act was a scandalous attack on liberty because it purported to hold people for 48 hours without judicial authorization. Those were the days. Uh, but the European Court of Human Rights, in a case called Brogan, said seven days is a breach of the right to liberty. Uh, Labour, in opposition, made a great sort of noise about it, but there's a risk in that noise where you make that point, you're caught if it goes the other way. And what happened was the government derogated and the derogation, the public emergency and threatening the life of the nation was regarded as a sufficient excuse for continued seven-day detention by the European Court of Human Rights, a case called Brannigan and McBride. I remember I was in Parliament when Tony Blair, I think he was the then Shadow Home Secretary, uh, was chided by the then Home Secretary, Michael Howard, who said, look, your European Court of Human Rights says seven days is okay. And in the political discourse, as Morris knows, that's not the time to say, but it's a derogation under Article 15, which isn't the same as Article 5. You've lost the audience. And you've lost Newsnight, and you've lost every soundbite. And the second example is a very contemporary one in the United Kingdom. It's the example of what has now become normal in Britain, which is collective punishment for, for, for protesters. And the form of collective punishment for protesters is that they are what's now called, and you have to admire the English language, kettled. A kettle used to be something with which you made a cup of tea. A kettle is now something which you use to punish kids if they have the temerity to protest about the increase in their tuition fees. And so the police impose these cordons on protesters when they gather in central London and these cordons can constrain their movements for up to eight hours, nine hours. Six hours recently, nine hours in the case in Oxford Circus. And they need to have some apprehension of a breach of the peace. There needs to be some assessment that there's likely to be some violence, but you know, in goes the cordon. The kids are held for hours and hours and hours and end. I'm referring, of course, you know, to the student protests in London, which have been astonishing, and all around the United Kingdom. This is a direct result of a case which went to the House of Lords called Austin, where the exactly same tactics were introduced in May 2000, and they were all upheld by the House of Lords as consistent with liberty, as consistent. Not a breach of the right to liberty, but rather part of the guarantee of the right to liberty. So when we reduce rights to law, the plus is we have a kind of truth, back to the first point. The negative is that we risk, because we have to have contact with reality, building in exceptions 
which then, in the hands of the interpreters, the judges, become reasons for departing from human rights within human rights. So I get beaten up. My rights are not infringed. I get held for nine hours in accordance with my rights. And, of course, that's harder to dislodge. They've taken your language. One of the tracks in the uh, book I'm doing on the web is called Colliding Futures. And it's about what are the potential futures for human rights. And I end this section of the talk on danger by looking at, say, Russia uh, or Hungary. And we see that they're members of the Council of Europe, that they subscribe to the European Court of Human Rights, that they are engaged in the world of human rights, the industry of human rights, and yet they are countries in which it seems you can have transparently bogus trials, in which you seem to be able to assassinate journalists, at least in the case of Russia, and in the case of Hungary, you can pass the most extraordinarily draconian anti-press laws. Now, how can all this happen within the discourse of human rights, not outside it. And that's a future that is a kind of human rights future, which is the future that will happen if human rights is beaten. In other words, the term won't disappear. It will be given a new meaning. And in its most extreme, you see it in the Burmese constitution, has a commitment to human rights. I don't know if you knew that. No, it's like the old word democracy. Once you see democracy in the constitution's name, you know exactly what kind of place you're dealing with. So that we need to be careful of that. That's the ultimate risk in the seductive but dangerous language of human rights. Now, all those terms, all those examples, led me to be very hostile to human rights. I downplayed the seductiveness and I talked up the danger. Uh, I now say necessary. And I end the talk with why. I think the language is necessary. And I first say necessary on our terms. So I see it as explicitly political. The first of The first of my manifesto pledges is a statement. Human rights are social democratic politics for our post-political age. I don't run from politics, I welcome it. I don't try and claim that human rights are above politics. I think they're a way of doing politics. And by that I mean the following. A commitment like Dworkin, who is so good on so much, to the dignity of the person reflected in their each having a responsibility to live reflexively considered lives and lives that are successful for them. But this feeds into a public morality, which is a political morality, that it is for the culture to determine in the collisions of necessities between people how best to reveal that 
in the society in which these people find themselves. So I'm a Democrat. I think democracy, meaning by that, votes by people who are elected, is an essential part of fleshing out what dignity means. And I refuse to believe that because of some hypotheticals about potential bad behaviour, we should empower guardians to control what we think as a political community we want to give meaning to dignity to be. I've, therefore, a starting point, which is that we have to fight for our meaning of human rights. And it's only our meaning of human rights that is necessary. And our meaning of human rights is individual esteem and dignity understood through the political process. Now, in Britain, there was enacted in 1998 a Human Rights Act. And it's been largely copied in the Republic of Ireland, as I'm sure you all know. And I was very much opposed to many of the earlier versions of that act, because I saw the act as too Dworkinian, as too keen to have the judges determine what the political playing field could do in the name of human rights. But such an act was not passed. What was passed was an act which squared the circle between democracy and dignity. And I have never had any difficulty about the act, and that's why I have difficulty about whether I've changed my mind about it. Because it says these rights matter. It gives the judges, as I'm sure many of you know, the power to declare that the rights are being infringed by legislation. But it does not give the judges, on the basis of those declarations, the power to strike down that legislation. So for lawyers, it's hard to understand. It's a declaration of incompatibility, which is not leading to what lawyers assume is always the case, the invalidity of the law. It was uh, an initiative of a colleague of mine at LSE, Professor Francesca Klug. The government took it up. It meant that the Labour government could get this bill through while not alienating its socialist members who mistrusted the judiciary. It works like this. The United Kingdom passes an internment law, Anti-Terrorism, Crime and Security Act, which is providing for indefinite detention of suspected terrorists as long as they are foreign, is indifferent to suspected terrorists if they are British, manifestly a breach of the discrimination prohibition in the, in, in the European Convention on Human Rights. The House of Lords, in a famous decision, says so, but as a result of that decision, nobody is released from internment, there is no governor ordered by any court to release any suspected international terrorists. There is a declaration of incompatibility, which Parliament then has to consider what to do about. And it leads to legislation that eventually supersedes the internment, and that's why we have control orders, about which there's been a big debate recently. That, in my opinion, is how it should be. The courts should be an intellectual resource in the fleshing out of what is meant by dignity, but they are only that, a resource, not a governor. They help us to have the debate. They do not prevent the debate. Uh, there's a book I've just 
published last, uh, uh, just before Christmas, called Debating Social Rights, with a colleague from now UCL, Virginia Montelevu. And it's called Debating Social Rights because Virginia argues for entrenched, judicially protected social rights. I am absolutely now in favour of social rights and absolutely against judicially enforceable rights. I think we need to fight in the political forum for a right to education, a right to health, a right to work. That's fine at the abstract general level of political engagement, but we should not enact generalised commitments to such rights if by that we are saying the job of implementing these rights is the job of the unelected judiciary. It is not their job. It is the job of our culture. Why does this language appeal to me now? Once you see the language of human rights as an important component in the political, as a way of equipping yourself with an argument to succeed in argument, in debate, which produces legislation, you can see the value of this language. It's dynamic. I'm not bothered by whether it passes some philosophical test of autonomy before it's deployed in political discourse. I wanted to capture some of the sense of the energy of the speaker for the universalization of the steam. It's progressive. And look at the ways in which the language of human rights is developing in the international sphere. The movement to persons with rights of persons with disabilities. The movement to the rights of indigenous peoples. The movement recently, very quickly and interestingly, towards the notion of an international right to water. And more recently, efforts to think about what are the implications of climate change for the vulnerable, for the poor. What discourse allows us to resist the pressure that is growing to accommodate global climate change so long as its victims are the poor? The language of human rights equips us with a way to resist that. The language of human rights has done, in my opinion, extremely important defensive work in the field of counterterrorism. The counterterrorism discussion is linked to the clash of civilization discussion to which I alluded earlier. There has been quite a pitch internationally through the United Nations, blacklisting, special committees, Security Council resolutions driving legislative obligations on member states to turn the UN into a police force for counterterrorism not a body which is overseeing the human rights records of nation-states. It has been the language of human rights that has managed to resist that, to some extent. The great work of the UN Special Rapporteur, Martin Scheinan, on human rights and terrorism, and the work of courts, unusually for me to say it, for courts who have bought into the basics of human rights, as we understand it, the progressive community, and so been able to resist the blacklisting that has been, without any due process, destroying the lives of people around the world. I'm thinking of the Caddy case, and also cases in the House of Lords. My last point about necessity is that it's the best language we have now. Maybe we prefer another language. Maybe some of us hanker after a kind of commitment to social justice as a driving force for our political community. 
Maybe some of us hanker after faith, after a religious perspective, which guarantees a universalism rooted in the respect for others that flows from a belief in God who respected others. But I don't think either of those is likely to be successful anytime soon. And so it seems to me that we are lucky to have some raw material to play with, ethical raw material, which has the capacity to reach across our culture and to try and persuade in a way which keeps the progressive flame alive at a dark time. Any language that you can use to talk with President George Bush, to talk with corporations, and to talk with trade unions, all at the same time, is a language worth having at this time. And I'll stop there, Morris, because I think I've slightly overshot. I'm over. I'm over. Thank you very much. Connor, that was quite stunning, and I know you've upset me on a few points, which is a good sign. It doesn't happen too often, but I, we're open to the floor. And uh, yes, the corner. Hi, my name is Owen O'Dell, I'm from Trinity College, Dublin. Um, I'm upset too. Um, it seems to me that you um, uh, made human rights the new religion. You dismissed religion at the, at the end, but uh, seem to have made human rights in your conception the new religion as seductive and dangerous, but necessary if they're part of uh, the democratic process. But it seems to me that the democratic process likewise is seductive and dangerous. You want to remove the privilege of a specific conception of human rights. You want to replace it with the privilege of a specific conception of the, the democratic process. But although you knock down your conception of uh, human rights, you don't set up why you think the democratic process uh, is capable of achieving the ends that you assert. You just simply say that it, that it does. So you've replaced one religion, human rights, with another, democracy. I don't think I heard you mention anything about children, and I'm sorry to put it this like bluntly as I'm putting it, but just to make my point, and I please don't take it literally, do you consider children in that sense to be like full human beings in the sense that if their parents have any rights over their sort of formation, let's call it that, in terms of, say, religion or anything else, but just in their formation as human beings, seeing that they're not fully developed, let's put it that way. I don't mean have they got rights, obviously. Do you know what I mean by that more in the adult sense of rights? Okay, okay we'll take one more question. Uh, yes. Um, thanks. Just no, two quick points. Sure. One, if you characterise rights as seductive, a seductive tool that can be used for good or for bad, it seems, that you call progressive or reactionary, but really just views you like or views you don't agree with, I suppose, a more general way of putting it. Uh, and that seduction is irrational, you say, because we're not interested in the truth of its foundations. It just works. And it might work for all kinds of reasons. We don't know why. Um, is there not, I mean, in what sense then is appeal to rights a sort of manipulation that you're just really just using this because you see that it's a pragmatic tool that works, but you don't change it? Just like a brief point that just on the analysis of the UK, um, I, I, I disagree on, in this sense, that you say it's a good solution, the Human Rights Act in Britain, because it hasn't given power to the judges because they go by a declaration of incompatibility. But the requirement that they interpret statute as far as possible with the Convention has been interpreted so liberally 
one could, you know, that they do have, they have now got extensive powers of rewriting effectively uh, legislation where the text isn't determinative, the intention isn't determinative. The, the, the criteria now is that you don't contradict the fundamental purpose of the legislation, but they get to decide what the fundamental purpose is. So how is that not effectively handed over to these judge, nasty judges that you're worried about? And, and secondly, if the ideal is that now um, courts in Britain count as a resource for fleshing out dignity, that seems to work on your basis by the fact that when they declare something is incompatible, people have to sit up and listen and now discuss it. But it seems to me that what you're basically saying is that if human rights is the currency and judges get to print the money, you know, they get to say something's incompatible. And if that is going to, you know, if you have a culture like you're saying, that declaration itself will become a massive political weapon. And either people, you know, if people can't, that judgment in itself either ends discussion or people will be allowed to say, oh, that's just judges saying that in fact we all have a right to our view on it. And then, in fact, the declaration has no value. So either it does have value, shuts down debate, and you effectively made the judges the, the final arbiter in a different way, soft power, or it just opens debate, in which case it doesn't yeah. matter. So anyway, so that's yeah. a long Okay, you have okay. three questions, which each one of which would require a chapter. Are you trying so, to tell me to be quiet and quick? <laughs> not quiet. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quick. Okay, thanks. I'll be very quick. I'll be very quick. I understand the point, Morris. Yeah. I, I think they are very tempting to go on at great length. You, in fact, asked three. Yes, you asked three. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a sentence, I'd have liked a system under the UK Human Rights Act where there were lots of declarations of incompatibility, and the uh, political representative said, we, we think we're on for that one, and we're not on for that one. I wanted more because my residual antagonism to the judicial branch reflected my, was reflected in my desire there be lots. There haven't been many. Uh, and so, in a sense, they are a big deal when they come and are treated as such. I agree with you on that. Disagree with you on Section 3. Now, I'm partly involved in that because I argued some cases in the courts which were formative in the development of the interpretation of Section 3. This is slightly anarchy stuff, but uh, if it had been left to Lord Stain, there would have been a presumption that the judges could do whatever they wanted if there weren't an express uh, exemption from human rights in the legislation. I think the case law, which is about going with the grain of the legislation, about interpreting the sections in light of the overall thrust of the legislation is highly effective. We could talk about that at some length, you know, but I think it works as an interpretative tool, largely, largely. Uh, the first point you made, when I wrote these lectures called the Hamlin Lectures, uh, initially I was very influenced by Richard Rorty and I invited him to chair one of the lectures, but he was, he's a famous pragmatist and he was already ill and he couldn't come and he'd love to have come because I, I think there's a great pragmatic argument for human rights which he denied by being so hostile to human rights, and it is the one you outlined. Essentially, it's a trick. And there is a, a part of me that says that, that we've, I wrote about this, we have enough unmasking, we need to remask, that we have exposed too much, and we need to have a culture which is more consciously aware of constructing stories which we believe in order to achieve a more civilised society. I didn't go down that route, I think human rights stands or falls, my version of it, my version of it, by being true. And I went very quickly mentioned something about it, the, the natural and understanding what is in us, which is reflected in the language of human rights, is the future for our subject. I don't think it can survive as a verbal trick. Very hard to say that very quickly, but well, that's, that's, well. that's it. That's, yeah. On children, we have to have an idea of a developing person, and I have no difficulty with that whatsoever. And so we need to see 
that the person's potentiality is contingent on where they are at a moment in time. So a nuanced approach to human rights doesn't uh, reify the human into a single category of person. It sees different kinds of persons composed at different moments and with different abilities and tries to get the best out of each of them. So I'm, I'm open to that entirely. And Owen, uh, brilliant point, you know, and you know well enough that I'm, I'm very close to what you've said. My only answer, for now, is I am an optimist. I believe that given a chance and a level playing field, without corporate power dominating the debate, we as a community can actually come to conclusions about a communal best interest which reflect our desire to have a society which respects its members as best it can in a way which treats each individual as an esteemed individual within it. I therefore have a confidence about the democratic process. That is, if you want, an intuition, a starting point that we may choose to reject. I have more confidence in a level political playing field than I have in a benign judicial bench. Um, can I just ask two things connected about both The first is, in relation to the danger, is there an optimal level of specificity of definition for rights which helps avoid the dangers you're concerned with? So, for example, you can have autonomy, which could be distilled down to a general privacy right, which could be distilled down to a right to correspondence. Are we better off with a small number of very broad, generalised ideas or a very large number of quite particular things? My second point is a bit more practical. You've spoken here and elsewhere in favour of the Human Rights Act and the mechanism there, and you've mentioned it's been transposed here, but in being transposed here, it has been completely ignored by the Iraqis, and there have been three declarations of independence so far, two of them in relation to exactly the same section, which continues to be used by local authorities, and yet nothing is being done by the Iraqis. So is it not happening in Ireland because we don't have a political culture to care about it? Is it because we're too concerned with the Constitution and we've been infantilised? And is there a worry there that what might happen in the UK that you're so fond of might ultimately go where we are now, that eventually the Human Rights Act loses its sheen and Parliament just starts to ignore things completely. Okay, that's an interesting one. Uh, I think there's somebody at the... Yes, sir. I'm just wondering, where do you stand with the French Revolution? <laughs> uh, well, come on, okay, come on. Okay. It seems relevant because... It's okay. Yeah, it is relevant. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering where you sit in that yeah. um, debate. Back. You mean you both have yeah. Okay, fair question. Yes. Um, you talked about truth in your um, and truth in the various claims of truth, religion leads to sectarianism, nationalism leads to fascism. I'm interested to know what my human rights lead to if it all went wrong. And the <laughs> second thing I'd like to ask the professor is where do human rights come from? Right. We've had three questions, two of them with multiple parts. Uh, I noticed there are three more people at least offering. So, Connor, maybe okay. we take these I'll three. I'll take these parts, yeah. yes. Uh, I'll go backwards as well because it's fresh in my mind. Uh, where do they come from? I'm thinking about nature. I've, I've done some work on this and I can't get into it now, but I, I, I refer you, you know, in a way. I think they need to come from somewhere and we need to get over this is-ought obsession. We need to look at things that are part of us and the name we use to describe them today is human rights. So I think I know where they come from, but it's a guess, it's a gamble. We can't be sure. Uh, what's 
can human rights lead to? Absolutely right. This is the worried dynamic, the dynamic of these things. Uh, two things. Again, I sort of mentioned them. One is uh, human rights could plunge into a kind of legalistic story, which is completely separate from people's life experiences and is just Dickensian in its bunches of well-paid people arguing over uh, sort of minutiae. That's one. And the other is the Putin example. And I really think that could happen, where there is this uh, benign... Uh, camouflage for authoritarianism and uh, so there's perpetual counterterrorism panic and the legislation for human rights is always the umbrella within which the brutality occurs and so I think it has a future and that would be the kind of dystopian future that I could imagine happening where you're tortured imprisoned and you're told that it's in order to support human rights you know. Uh, the French Revolution uh, it's very important in this field because it stimulated Bentham and Marx into fantastic criticisms of human rights which dealt the blow to the subject till 1945 after the Second World War. So it's important for that. Uh, I'm, I'm a great fan of the Declaration of the Rights of the Citizen. I'm not a fan of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. I'm with Marx on all that he said about the Declaration of the Rights of Man. I think Marx didn't think through the Declaration of the Rights of the Citizen. He nearly got there. And one of the great pities about Marx is how he retained a kind of ambiguity about the difference between the two, and therefore his gospel was not available when they split over whether or not, whether or not participating in democratic culture mattered. I, I like to believe I'd have been with the people who said it mattered, that it's not just about facilitating the butcher, you know? So it's significant, and I think that's where I'd be on that. Uh, uh, I know you're Alan, so I can reveal that I know you're Alan. Uh, the HRA loses its sheen... Well, it's a bit like what I said. I mean, maybe I think it's a bit cheeny. You know, I mean, it's a bit complicated for me to suddenly lurch into this here. But I, I think people should fight for it. I think if, if the Tories want to repeal it, let them try and repeal it. I think far too many people think they've got it in their back pocket. They're morally superior to everybody else. They don't need to argue the case against uh, bad treatment of immigrants. They don't need to argue the case because they're superior, you know. And one thing human rights can do is mislead people into thinking that the argument is over when actually the argument has just begun. Look at Roe versus Wade, the abortion case in the United States of America. They thought they'd won because they believed Harry Blackburn, the judge, when he said they had a constitutional right to terminate pregnancies. Well, the right wing, the people who cared, and they're not all right wing, about the unborn, did not think that it was over. So, you know, I wouldn't mind a bit of a less of a sheen and more of a sense of energy. It's a gain, like the National Health Service was a gain. Like, education acts a gain, but gains can go in politics. On your first point, I think if... It's really interesting to think about what gives thinkers impact. And I think that if a political culture wants to prioritise versions of the subject because it suits their interests, obscure second raters will find themselves leading intellectual figures. So I'm not sure that the answer is doing more thinking and writing better books. I think, it's, I think the meaning we give terms is so tied up with who the we are and what the gains are from the terms meaning as given to them by people in whose interest it is to have that meaning accorded to them. So I, I'm not so sure it makes much difference how brainy we are if the powerful want to do something with the term. They'll find Michael Ignatio. Lady in the corner. Uh, view of the world, and I'm wondering if you think that can be opened up the 
our concept of human rights can be opened up to, to sustain other non-Western ideologies, particularly in an international law context. Thank you. Thanks very much, Amy. Um, that was a really interesting talk. Um, I come from the Equality Authority, and while we have many scars from the conservative judiciary, we're still very attached to judicially enforceable rights. And just to give one example, members of the Traveller community in Ireland, um, we have a situation where a substantial minority in Ireland do not respect the dignity of travellers. They feel free to say horrendous things about them in the media, on Facebook, um, and at the same time, we have schools um, putting up barriers to admitting travellers, we have county councils putting up barriers to accommodating travellers. And if we're not, ha if we don't have judicially enforceable rights, and if we have a context where we don't have a consensus in favour of respect and dignity, what other arguments do we have in terms of protecting travellers and rights? Yeah. Okay, I'll take one more question, I think. Yes. Oh, no, I was very interested in, in the book, particularly the arguments around uh, the role, role of the judges. And you presented a dichotomy between uh, sort of judicially vindicated rights on the one hand and politically vindicated rights on the other. I wonder about the, the position, your position on non-judicial review. You know, the local authorities here are implementing rules that have effects and there are processes for reviewing those effects within the authorities and through other mechanisms such as uh, complaints to, to, to ombudsmen. Parliamentary draft people are a very important aspect of the implementation of, uh, of human rights legislation. So we have a variety of public bodies concerned with publicly reviewing the conduct of government its compliance with rights. It doesn't involve the, the, the judiciary. Uh, and human rights bodies and equality bodies have a kind of technocratic role in that respect. Part of their legitimacy is premised upon expertise, the, the opposite of democracy, if you like. Uh, that's not to argue against it, but to say non-judicial review is something you haven't mentioned at all in, 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 in this context. And I wonder what your position is on what the role is of non-judicial review, of both public and private, in the vindication of rights. Thanks. Uh, and of course, I, I know Colin, who's a colleague at LSE now, but Colin's given me the chance to say that uh, I, I absolutely think once we free ourselves of this obsession with the judicial, we are free to look at ways in which we can embed the language of human rights and culture and achieve the kind of accountability and understanding that, for example, more imaginative ways of engaging with the language can achieve. And there are examples of which I'm fantastic fans. There's a section in our Act and yours which says when you put a bill before the House or the Oireachtas, you actually say what the human rights dimensions of the bill are. That means people are looking at it early. You've got in Britain this Joint Committee on Human Rights, which is to me a model of human rights invigilation. Produces reports, doesn't overturn anything, forces government to answer. And you have the same on the international scene. You have the special rapporteurs, you have experts absolutely right. But they're experts who, without being offensive, know their place. They are opinion formers, not result deliverers. And so their job is to try and get our culture to see the value of their contributions. And so I think those are terrific. Now, in the human rights arena, it can sometimes spill into naked partisanship. You know, there's a body, the Human Rights Council, at the UN level, which is basically the body which all human rights abusers have to get on. You know? So I don't want to idealise alternatives to judicial power, particularly in the international sphere. 
But if we, as lawyers, and lawyers have owned this subject for too long, if we stop thinking about litigation as the only answer and start thinking about other ways in which we can achieve accountability and the embedding of our ideas, we can end up in the world that you've described, uh, in which I would be extremely comfortable, I have to say. On equality, uh, part of the dystopian future was Sarkozy's boasting about the attacks on the Roma. And the poor, unfortunate European Union left, left on its own, this poor person whose name I've now forgotten, to try... Vivian Redding. Vivian Redding. Yes. To try and say something. And then the lack of support is frighteningly deafening. Frighteningly. Berlusconi, mm. in between his parties, allowing people to drown. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Now, judicial review is very important. I couldn't agree more. But I want to make one point on what you've said. And I, on this website thing, I did a lecture for the 20th anniversary of Asylum Aid. And they are terrific people in the United Kingdom who do tremendous work protecting asylum seekers. And they are very reliant on marvellous judgments which protect past gains from present hostility. But I said to them what I'll say now, which is don't always think that relying on courts to preserve past gains will be enough. You need to win the discussion today as well. Because otherwise what will happen is you'll get a Sarkozy or a Berlusconi who says, I don't care, I don't care. And the public are waiting for that. And then I said, unfortunately, you can't expect a culture where you are treating your own people with contempt than to treat visitors with anything other than contempt. So I say that uh, the treatment of the foreigner is tied up to the collapse of our social democratic confidence. And that if we gave each other the chance of a good life, we'd be delighted to have foreigners in the place. So I think the two are related, I have to say. Uh, the very last point, thank you very much on that. It's an excellent one. And I think among the most moving things you can read, there's a great book by a wonderful Global North Westerner, Bill Twining, called Southern Voices. And what Bill has done is he's gone to four or five professors of international human rights or thinkers of international human rights from the Global South. And he has located their work in historical context and explained them. And if you're interested, it's called Southern Voices. And these are men and women who are saying the values of human rights, i.e. fits my scheme, are universal. They belong to our culture, but this culture is under attack from the plunderers who purport to represent it at the international level. And they find it in the Koran, and they find it in the history and practice of Islam, and they find it most movingly in Sudan. So these traditions, which we call human rights traditions, are in other cultures, but sadly, as a result of the kind of global change which has flowed from our dominance of the world and our brutal selfishness, have fallen into abeyance, and, and, and these, these threads are under stress. So we must work to draw these threads to the surface. The sad thing is most of the guys who wrote in that book are working in Britain or in the United States because it's not safe for them to argue what they're arguing. But they are not afraid of the people. They're afraid of these bandit governments that claim to represent the people.